0: Hello, I'm Andrew Fuller. I'm a clinical psychologist and work with children, teenagers and their families, particularly in the areas of resilience, learning strengths and well-being. I'm also the chairperson of Generation Next. And in this series of podcasts, I'll be speaking with people who are experts in their area in terms of mental health and well-being. Thank you for joining us and thank you for being part of the Generation Next podcast group. Thank you. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Sharman, Dr. Rachel Sharman, who is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of the Sunshine Coast. And uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about green space the, basically, the need for green space for children, the research behind it, and basically the implications that it has really for planners as we uh, try to promote mental well being in the world. So. Welcome, Rachel, it's great to have you here. Thanks, thanks, really enjoy this series. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about the background of the green space movement and how you become involved in or intrigued by it.
1: Yeah, look, so this is not, I mean, I suppose it's very old primitive wisdom in many ways, but from a research point of view, uh, in 1984, so not that long ago, really. Uh, psychologist Roger Ulrich published a very interesting paper where he looked at um, the uh, recovery of patients in a hospital where some had been assigned to a room with a view. So a view of nature specifically. So they were looking over trees and there was a lovely outlook and others had just were just in a normal hospital room. And what he was able to demonstrate quite um, compellingly was that there was a statistically significant difference between those people who uh, were overlooking nature in terms of their recovery rate, their their use of morphine, for example, or other painkillers. Basically, they got better quicker and with a lot less intervention. So this really sort of started off, a you know, some people thought, oh, maybe this is just a one off, but no, this started off a real um, surge of interest in, well, hang on a minute, what's going on here? Why are people doing better if they are exposed to nature or green space, as it was um, then called, uh, as opposed to people sort of locked in a little box or, or living in a concrete jungle or you know, hence cities and skyscrapers and things like that. So there's been quite a flurry of research about this um, since that time. And in fact the research is just or the the results are just getting stronger and stronger we're even down to brain imaging now what happens to your brain when you've been exposed to nature or green space for a period of time as opposed to say taking a walk through an urban jungle Um, you know they shove you in a machine that goes bing and you know looks at (laughs) looks at everything that lights up or doesn't light up or it's the case maybe and they're finding some quite stark differences so We seem to be down to two primary um, theories about this. The first is attention restoration. So life is busy. Our brains are processing information all the time and they get overwhelmed and they get tired exactly the same if I made you run around on a track for, you know, five hours, your your muscles would be overwhelmed and you would be tired. The brain is no different. It's an organ. And for reasons we don't fully understand yet, but it's very clear that this is happening. Exposure to nature just literally sitting in a garden or sitting on the beach seems to allow our brain to relax and just and just tune down so it's called attention restoration theory. And I think there's been some very, very good research demonstrating that the, the brain absolutely just breathes a sigh of relief when it's in a nature space. Um, look, we're, we're even sort of trying to look into, is this down to sort of carpentered world theory? Like, is this about the lines, the brain doesn't like that it's too organized, it likes nature for some reason. Uh, at the moment, we, we haven't sort of filled that gap as to, to why the brain is... Um, is much happier in a nature space and looking at nature and being within nature, but, but it certainly is happening, there's no doubt about that. So some of the very simple studies they do is they take kitties for a walk through a park versus a city versus like a playground and they look at their ability to do cognitive tasks after that, particularly tasks requiring attention, And indeed the children do much better if they've had a little walk in nature. So it's not just exercise, it's not just getting out and about, it's green space specifically. So we have really nutted that one down. The other one that's a little bit hard to pin down is a theory called biophilia. And I suppose this is for the more philosophical um, or for people perhaps from more indigenous collectivist societies. It is that idea that we are all connected And that divorcing you from a connection that you should be having, so divorcing you by putting you in air-conditioned offices, in concrete buildings, all that sort of thing, it's an artificial environment. So, you know, if I was to feed you a synthetic diet for the next five years, I could keep you alive. Would you be very happy about that? Probably not, you know, so there's something about just being a part of the biosphere that appears to work for people. Now, from a scientific point of view, this has been really difficult to study because people who understand science, it's very reductionist. We've got to put you in a petri dish and keep all all conditions the same. Very difficult one to study. But I think, you know, as a talking point, it's interesting what happens when we put humans in artificial environments. And certainly we know from other research, when we artificialize things too much, people tend to fall apart psychologically around the edges. So I I think it's got a fair premise. Um, It's just a very difficult theory to sort of study and and research and and produce good quality results.
0: About 25 years ago, there was the deinstitutionalization movement which closed many major psychiatric hospitals. Many of the major psychiatric hospitals were surrounded by farmland. And what was derisively said was grass doesn't cure mental illness. But really what you're saying is that it does have a role, green space has a role in healing, not just in terms of physical healing, but also in terms of mental healing.
1: Absolutely. It has very clear restorative ability or or factors associated with it. So being able to, yeah, just being able to immerse yourself in nature, green space, blue space, beaches work just as well. It seems to be that open air actual um you know access to the natural environment that's terribly important and i think there's a there's an extra special um issue here with children because their brain is still developing and again people have really forgotten that we we tend in our society to um, treat children like mini adults it's absolutely wrong it couldn't be more wrong if you tried their brains are developing you know you and me andrew we've got a nice rigid brain we're a bit beyond help now but you know (laughs) we're old, it's done, it's set. And I often use the analogy of wet versus set concrete. So, you know, if you think of your brain and my brain as concrete, um, you know, if you drive a truck through it, fine, whatever, you know, uh, know, if, if you smash it up enough, okay, it'll get hurt. But a little kitty's developing brain is like wet concrete. So you've got the power to do a lot of good here, as well as a lot of evil, which is, of course, is why, you know, if people suffer really quite significant traumas in childhood, it tends to come back and bite them much more than if they suffer a similar sort of um, issue in adulthood. It, It sort of changes the trajectory of that developing brain. I think some of the really exciting research and if I remember correctly coming out of Spain looked at putting kitties in a park and it had to be an open green space they actually put them in a lot of different environments but it was open green spaces and they looked and then they shoved them in the machine that goes bing at the end of this after a few weeks or months and they looked at um, how their brains were developing you know the actual gray matter white matter you know right down to tin tacks and were able to demonstrate that in fact those children who'd been given exposure to the open green spaces were showing improvements in the areas of the brain that are often associated with ADHD. So this is very exciting research. It's quite new, obviously it needs to be replicated and in a longitudinal fashion, no question of that. But the reason they did that was because there was some really interesting research particularly in Canada and a few other urbanized places simply looking, it was a very correlational design, but simply looking at the rate of ADHD, depending on your um, distance from a park. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a bit of a worrying factor when it comes up trumps, isn't it? And so there was absolutely, you could you could map it. So the further these boys, boys in particular, were being raised away from open green space, access to a park. So they were particularly worried about, you know, boys being raised in apartment buildings. This is how this sort of all started. And the further the further you got away from a park, the more likely you were to be diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed medication. So that was just the correlational design that went, hey, this is a little weird. That's, that's not sort of expected. And then these Spanish researchers actually sort of threw these kids up trees and in buildings and, you know, and then actually, put them in a functional MRI and had a look at what bits of the brain were doing what after a certain period of time. So, you know, that's a really interesting factor, I think for um, research for green space in particular, because it is suggesting that the brain might actually change at a very hardware physical level, particularly that growing brain. Yours and mine brain, not so much. Maybe maybe our brain just relaxes (laughs) and breathes that sigh of relief. But for children in particular, there could be some lifelong impacts of green space or more to the point, divorcing them from green space.
0: So Rachel, if you were advising a school counsellor in an urban concrete ridden school who had quite a number of students with ADHD, what would you be recommending?
1: Look, as much outdoor play as humanly possible, obviously in open green spaces. And this is our problem. I think urban designers are absolutely getting on board with this. I've now given talks to a number of um, architects and landscape architects. There's a real movement about greening urban um, you know, areas and making sure that we, we're not sort of just making it all concrete and fancy and all the rest of it. Um, the Marta Hospital, I think architect, I spoke to her personally, she won a, uh, a prize for her healing gardens at the Marta Hospital. so. They wanted to. Oh, what's it called now? Queensland Children's Hospital. Sorry. So they wanted to. Um, they wanted to put in some areas where staff and patients could just go and relax to. And some of the brief that they were given was, of course, staff who you know participate in very high-level, intense, anxiety-provoking resuscitations need to go and just retreat and debrief and just. Get themselves settled before they can sort of go back on the ward again. Um, so they they did an amazing job of building in these healing gardens, sort of on and around you know the various floors of the hospital. Um, and as I said, eventually won an award for their work. But that came off the back of good medical and psychological advice to say, this is the best thing we can do for people working in these high sort of energy level environments and uh, you know, things go horribly wrong and there's trauma. We just need to give them a space to retreat to. So I would be saying the same thing to the school. What can you potentially do to green up an area? In some schools, it's gonna be really challenging those inner city schools. Um, but likewise I was actually um, asked to provide a report to the South Australian Court a few years ago, the Supreme Court, because they had a, um, a, a child care provider who was trying to get away with providing a green space for their children. So I wrote a very strong report outlining all the reasons why this was an incredibly bad idea. <laughs> they should not be allowed to do that. So it's interesting, some states are now legislating that if you're going to build an environment for children to be, I don't know about hospitals specifically, but certainly for children, thou shalt have this amount of green space or this amount of open space available. And I think that's a really good policy move. And I certainly hope to see it rolled out in, in a, you know, every state and to make sure that children do not have that withheld from them, because I think that's going to be a real problem if that's allowed to continue.
0: Thank you for advocating for healing spaces on behalf of kids and adults as well. I just- mm. I'm interested, as you advocate for it, do you get much resistance or pushback?
1: Look, very little, apart from the people who are trying to save money. So the the only pushback I've ever seen was that South Australian case where they simply asked me to write as an expert just a report as to why this was a bad idea. I think the court was very keen to knock it on the head (laughs) before it started. They just wanted an extra bit of, you know, doctor in front of someone's name, tell us this is a bad idea. Um, No, in fact, most people are really um, very much in favour of it. And I think it just intrinsically speaks to somewhat something. I think most people when you explain this and you say, look, we really do need access to green spaces, think about the time you spend in your garden, think about some of the happiest times of your childhood. You know, very rarely are people saying, yeah, I loved, you know, sort of walking up and down the middle of a polluted main street. That's, that's not their happy memories. It is about being out and about and usually in nature. So, when you explain all of this to them they really do it clicks straight away and i think most people just intrinsically get it
0: let me see if i can just summarize what i've got from our wonderful conversation it seems to me if i was advocating for the provision of green space for children i would probably argue on the basis that it enhances cognitive abilities so learning and decision making and memory are enhanced and probably mm-hmm. concentration as well and particularly those young people with attentional difficulties will benefit dramatically. And also it will more deeply connect young people and give them a greater sense of belonging. Am I stretching it too far?
1: No, not actually not far enough. I'll add in one more for the, um, for the physios and the medical people, uh, physical activity. So again, if we, if we compare children playing in playgrounds as in built playgrounds, you know, the plastic fantastics and we look at what they do in nature, they do more. They are more creative they tend to exert more you know physical sort of um you know uh, energy and interestingly i guess one of the things the physios have pointed out to me is that nature has not been set up or designed with the perfect 30 centimeter workplace health and safety regulated gap between whatever you have to adapt to it so you have to stretch yourself physically, you've got to figure out how am I going to, you know, climb this tree or reach that branch or how am I going to get work to work together with other children, actually use some social skills as well to build a, you know, a bench to go across there or, you know, a log across the bridge. And in fact, the, the benefits of having kids play in nature from a pure physical point of view, and a lot of OTs and physios are really getting on board with this now, is much more hot than having them in the, the magnificent playground, which has been soft-falled and mollycoddled and, and, and cotton walled for them. It's not necessarily helping them, you know, develop. So, yeah, so don't forget the physical stuff as well. It's not all psychological.
0: And so I know paediatricians, some of them, are talking about green space prescriptions. Do you want to comment on that?
1: So there's a really interesting, um, I think it's uh, Shetland from memory in the UK, their their entire medical practice, so not just children, they are now offering green space prescriptions. And to the point that they got together um, as as a medical practice, and they put together places in their local area that you could go to access green space. So I think this is a great idea. I mean, not just doctors, but schools could really help with this. Have a look at your local area what's available and start writing some, you know, doing up a pamphlet, here's where you could go, this is what you could do, this is a great thing to do with your kids. The other thing that's really interesting is this research has now gone so far, particularly with some of the brain imaging research, we've actually got really good information on what amount of time you need to spend in nature to get a particular benefit. So um, from memory, I think heart-related conditions, blood pressure, not as long as you think. That actually tends to be a shorter time. Something like 20 minutes per session tends to um, result in, in better outcomes for people with high blood pressure. But for things like anxiety and rumination, it tends to be quite a bit longer. So a good 60 to 90 minutes per session is needed. And it's not just people saying yes I feel less anxious again this is people then being wheeled into the machine that goes bing and we look at what's actually happening in their brain and we see that those sorts of um, centers that are usually associated with rumination are all calming down just calming down which is lovely at the moment somewhere between two to three hundred minutes per week in nature seems to give the most benefit across the board. So if you can get three to four hours per week in nature, you're going great guns. After that, it seems to plateau. There doesn't seem to be much extra benefit on top of that. So, you know, it's 30 to 60 minutes a day if you want to be sort of really at the, the, the upper end of, of brilliant. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's what's needed. So yeah, actual prescriptions. And I, I don't think you need to be a doctor. I think I'm sure you could just as a school principal, could put together a pamphlet for your um, families. And I think you could very confidently say, can you get your kids out for a minimum 30 minutes a day? Here are some great places you could go.
0: Thank you so much. Our listeners no doubt would like to follow up and learn more. Are there any particular sites or books that you would recommend?
1: Yeah, look, Nature Play Queensland has got some great ideas and it's very focused on children. So for the teachers and paediatricians and and family doctors listening to this, uh, jump onto Nature Play Queensland. They have got all sorts of funny little things for kids, nature passports, as well as 50 things to do before you're 12. You know, all of these nature based activities and games and things that you can play. So have a look at their resources. They've got some great stuff. Uh, I believe last time I was looking at some of their stuff, they've even done up some lesson plans, actual specific lesson plans for the teachers out there who are listening to this to try and incorporate some nature play into your into your you know your typical maths lesson or your typical English lesson or whatever, actually using nature to help kids understand some of these concepts. So um, that's a great idea as well. So yeah, they're probably one of the better organizations for actual real practical stuff at the moment. And as for the research, hey, Google Scholar, it's <laughs> All of your doctors listening will have access to that research. It's not hard to find. There's a lot of it and it just keeps coming down the line, which is
0: magnificent. Thank you so much for your, your work and for your inspirational thinking around such an important issue for young people. And now I'm off to go and play in the park, so I better go. Brilliant. I'll I'll go for a swim. <laughs> <laughs> See you. Bye now. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you would like to follow up, in further detail, please listen in to some of the other podcasts that we have made, which are available through the Generation Next website. There are also a series of books uh, from Generation Next in terms of nurturing young minds, uh, covering a series of issues to do with young people. And also in my own book, Tricky Behaviors and Your Best Life at Any Age, which are both available either on Amazon or through Bad Apple Press. Thank you so much and i uh, hope to connect with you again soon thank you
1: the mental health and well-being of young people seminar has gone digital this is a resource for anyone who supports young people the e-learning hub has all your favorite speakers from the generation next events and much more there are hours and hours of courses to choose from we know life's busy so we made sure you can pause the courses at any stage and continue where you left off the next time you log in you can also automatically download your certificates of participation and record your notes and ideas with the documentation tool and editable course books if you would like to try it out head to generationnext.com.au and sign up yourself and your whole team for the next free course and please share the resource far and wide thank you for your support for generation next and all you do to support young people